0: Hey there, welcome to DSR, Become a Better Man. This is a show where we look at dating, sex, and relationships in a way that translates to results. We're looking for any and every information, practical information, to apply to our lives. What changes our lives is taking action. It's not just the information. So here's a first action for you to take if you're new or you haven't already done this. Go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13. Go to that URL and you can download an audio interview between me and one of our top editors on the best advice of all time. So we've both been in this for around 15 years now. And we've come across a lot of cool stuff, a lot of stuff that's worked. And of course, we've done this ourselves. We've been through the whole journey. And in this interview, we outline our top 13 pieces of advice, the top 13 guys or women behind that advice. And it's a great place to start before you dive into all of these interviews. So that's go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13. Today's topic was super fascinating to me. It's about how society is changing and it's really changing fast as it goes. The ratios of men to women in certain situations, in certain scenarios, in your social life, in your career life, basically where you interact with people, uh, that's changing a lot. And it's changing your dating life. It really does have a big impact on it. There are real decisions that you're taking every day, where you study, where you work, where you live, and which communities you hang out in, which heavily influence or even decide whether you are monogamous or you're polyamorous, you just like hookups, or what you like. I always find it fascinating how our environments change us, how they craft us. So I, for one, are very careful with my environment, how it's set up. I'm very careful with these real decisions. I'm just talking about where you study, where you work, what you do who you associate with, who your friends are, and so on. And you should be too. Because these decisions will influence how easy or how difficult you find your dating life and how it fits with your goals. Whether you want a long-term monogamous relationship or you want to play around and be casual for a fair amount of time. So it's important to understand the implications of decisions you're making across your whole life because these are also impacting your dating and relationships. And for many of you, the reason you're listening to this is because dating and relationships are an important part of your lives. It's something that's important to you to get right and have it working for you. Today's guest is the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. Our guest is John Berger, and he's looking at the dating market, really looking at it from an economics and supply and demand eye to it. John Berger is well positioned to do this since he's an award-winning journalist contributor to Fortune magazine his work has also appeared in Barron's Money magazine New York magazine Time magazine and the Washington Post and often appearing on television and radio such as ABC's Good Morning America BBC World Service CNBC CNN Fox News MSNBC and National Public Radio and John in this interview he gives us a really interesting and very different perspective on the whole game of dating relationships and sex and This is definitely something you want to integrate into your thinking. I think it can help you uh, think a bit more long term and strategically about how you're going to get satisfaction in your life from dating, sex and relationships, how it's going to work for you. And uh, you'll probably be able to identify areas in your life or decisions you've made which are actually working against you. That doesn't mean you need to change them, but being conscious of these things is going to help you. So enjoy this episode. It's really a great new perspective that you should take on board. I'm Angel Donovan and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. John, thank you so much for joining the show. You're welcome. Yes, you've put forth uh, this book, which has kind of this new big idea about dating, sex, and relationships and how it's all working today in modern life. And I think what's great about it is you're looking at some things that we currently say that affect the dating market, the way men and women are kind of competing for each other. And you're kind of turning some of those on its head. Could you give us a quick background to how you got into this, how you started looking at demographics? What was the kind of the event that started you to look at this and start thinking that there was something there?
1: Sure. Well, as your question implies, I normally write about much more boring stuff like the stock market or energy or things like that for usually for Fortune magazine. But you know, over the years, I had noticed, particularly at my last two employers, Fortune and Money, that the staffs at both magazines were disproportionately women. Yet all, all the guys were, were married or involved in long-term relationships. And the women, who from a dating perspective all seemed to have a lot more going for them, which is my way of saying they were all much better looking than we were. They had these dating histories and dating stories that just made no sense to me. Either they never got asked out on dates at all, they claimed, or they had guys who mistreated them or cheated on them. And I couldn't figure out why it was so much easier for the guys I knew than it was for the women. So that that's the origin of it.
0: Great. And what, you're working in New York? New it? York, yes. Sorry. Yes, in New York. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, everyone's kind of noticed that, depending on where you're working in different offices and stuff. So what would you say the basic thesis... the the hypothesis of the book is that you're putting forward? Well, I'll say when I started out the research, I actually had a different
1: thought. I I assumed this was something unique to big cities like New York or London or Toronto or LA, and that there was something about the labor markets in these cities that tended to attract a lot of women. What I discovered was it's not just a city phenomenon. It's really an everywhere phenomenon. So everywhere in the United States, um, there are about four women graduating from college for every three men. The numbers are very similar in the UK. And it's actually very similar in in most Western countries where you have 25 to 35% more women than men graduating from college. And this kind of spills over into the post-college dating world in part because college grads are are unlikely to date and eventually marry non-college grads. So you end up with this dating pool with more women than men. And not only does that make it statistically harder for women to find a match, but it changes behavior too.
0: Great, great. So is this is only affecting people in college and who are college educated, basically, they went to college and then or they're working after after college. And so you mentioned a, a few big cities around the place there, like so New York and, and places like this. Is there actually a demographic change there also? Or is it just the fact that the demographics of just the college educated people there are swung toward you know, as a bias towards more women?
1: Well, like I said, I, I thought this was a story about big cities like New York. But in the state of Montana, which is, I don't know if you're familiar, it's very rural in western U.S., the gender ratio imbalance among college grads is bigger in Montana than it is in New York City. So this imbalance exists everywhere, whether you're in rural states or rural areas or in big cities like New York and London. And the flip side exists as well. So among people in the U.S., who do not have a college degree, who are aged 22 to 29, there are about 9 million single men versus about 7 million single women. So the working class guys have it almost as bad uh, as the college educated women.
0: Right. So they're finding it harder because the women who are college educated don't want to date uneducated, well, not uneducated, but non-college educated uh, men.
1: Right. Basically, in the blue collar world, the women are going off to college and leaving their high school boyfriends. Right. behind.
0: OK, that makes that makes sense. I think people can, people can relate to it that way. OK, great. I think that set the stage really well. So it's not really like a specific demographic only problem because it's, it's interesting because I've lived in a fair number of places and uh, Shanghai was one of those places. And we always used to tell each other. Everyone used to kind of promote this idea that there were just lots, lots more women in Shanghai, which I think is proven in the statistics. But our ideas was just that because of that, the dating was easier. And I think most men who have visited Shanghai can relate to that. And I think the reason we thought that was is just there were lots more types of jobs that were relevant to, to women in that society. So that might be a completely different thing. I don't know if you could give your perspective on China or other places.
1: Certainly there are cities that have job markets that tend to draw more men or more women. So in the United States, cities like San Jose, California, or Austin, Texas, or Seattle, Washington, those have big tech industries. And as a result, they tend to draw more men. And certainly there are cities like Washington, DC, a lot of the um, disproportionate number of the young government workers in Washington are women. So certainly there is some regional Variation. Um, What's really interesting—I don't know about Shanghai in particular—but what's interesting about China is that even though, because of the old one-child policy in China, you have about twenty percent more young men than women, you still have ten percent more women than men in college in China, which I find I find fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's a big trend. And so, how long has this been going on? That there's been more women coming out of colleges. Basically, what kind of age range does it represent today?
1: The last year in the U.S. that more men than women graduated from college, the last time that happened was 1981. So it's been getting progressively worse every year since the early 80s. Uh, So last year in the U.S., there were 34 percent more women than men who graduated from college. The United States Department of Education, their estimate is that by the year 2023, there will be 47% more women than men graduating from
0: college. Wow. Wow. So that basically means anyone kind of under 50 is affected by this, this trend, more or less 45, 50.
1: Yeah, I mean I will say that I graduated from college in nineteen ninety. And even though the, the in the eighties there may have been more women than men, the, the gender imbalance was much milder back then. Maybe maybe the average ratio was fifty two, forty eight. So I don't think slight imbalances have as or I know they don't have as profound an impact as a sixty forty gender ratio, which means three women for every two men.
0: Right, right. And so it's got steadily worse over time. Now, it? And it, do you think it's continuing that trend?
1: Yeah, it seems to be. Every year it gets marginally worse. Wow. Like I said, within 10 years, the Department of Education thinks we're going to go from 34% more women than men to 47% more women than men.
0: Great, great. Now, I find it really interesting some of the stories you have in the book talking about how this has really changed the dynamics at colleges. If we start at colleges. What kinds of things are going on in colleges today, and especially in the, cause I understand there's a difference in, in colleges. Some are more dominated by women overall, they're, they're dominated by women, but there are some that have much more extreme ratios than others. So um, maybe we could look at an extreme situation first and, and kind of uh, understand afterwards, like relate how that relate that goes across the country.
1: Yeah, I, I use two extreme cases as as case studies. One of them is California Institute of Technology, which is basically the MIT of the West Coast. They're in Pasadena, California. Caltech, which is known as Caltech, has about 60, it's about 60% male, which means three men for every two women. And I did a focus group with about 12 Caltech students. And they basically told me that there was no hookup culture there in fact that that term wasn 't even part of the campus vernacular, and that if people got involved in and got involved, it was always in the context of a relationship. It was also quite it, one young woman told me that her one of the upperclassmen who was living in her dorm, her freshman dorm as an advisor, this woman told her not to rush into her first college relationship because she'll probably end up marrying the guy. <laughs> <laughs> um and, and in fact, I did there does seem to be evidence of a lot of Caltech couples that graduate and then go on and get married. So I, this is not uncommon. The most interesting story I heard when I was there it happened to be a few weeks after valentine's day i forget do you you celebrate valentine's day in the uk
0: yeah yeah i I think it's a global phenomenon i wasn't sure
1: (laughs) (laughs) sometimes us americans make holidays into bigger deals than they actually anyway so yes it was a few weeks after valentine's day and i asked one of the young men um i'm just curious what is valentine's day like at caltech caltech has kind of a house system probably not unlike what a lot of british Colleges and universities have in which the, the students live in the same dorm all four years. Uh, so it's, it's the same group of friends. And he told me, oh, our house, Lloyd House, we have this big Valentine's Day tradition. And the tradition was that all the men make handcrafted valentines for the girls and then wake up at the crack of dawn on Valentine's Day morning to cook them pancakes.
0: Oh, yeah. That's uh, uh, very unusual. <laughs> very
1: unusual, although the social science on gender ratios indicates that when men are in oversupply, the whole dating culture becomes more focused on courtship and romance. So while it sounds surprising, it actually fits in perfectly with the the social science on on how sex ratios affect behavior. Now, the other extreme is Sarah Lawrence College, uh, which is in, in suburban New York. It used to be an all-women's college, but now it's 75% female, 25% male, which means about three women for every one man. I interviewed several students from Sarah Lawrence, and basically what they told me is Sarah Lawrence has one of the most extreme hookup cultures that you can imagine. One young woman told me that, um, you know, when I asked her if any of the men uh, wanted girlfriends— her response was, quote, why would they? It's like they have their own free harem. Hmm. She said that a guy broke up with her, one of her best friends after they'd been together maybe three or four days, and when he broke up with her, he actually used the word market, like the market for him was too good. I interviewed another guy just to paint a picture here that he did not look like, um, like David Beckham or something like that. He kind of looked like a a malnourished John Lennon circa 1970. You know, (laughs) I mean, I mean, he he wasn't a bad looking guy, but he was kind of a mess. I'm just trying to express that he's, he was no like heartthrob. He was telling me these stories about his dating life that seemed rather extraordinary. And at one one point I stopped him and I asked him, I'm just curious of your just your current circle of female friends, how many of them have you had sex with? Now, this is just his current friends. He, without even doing a head count, he said, oh, at least 20. And he could tell I had a little bit of a, a reaction to that. And he, then he tried to add a disclaimer. He said, well, I should just tell you that includes some threesomes and foursomes. So, so you could really see, and he, he knew what was going on. He actually told me you know, that because of the gender ratio at Sarah Lawrence, there wasn't a culture of monogamy or even dating. And his quote to me was, sometimes it feels like you can have anyone you want, end quote. And then in the book, if you want to talk about less extreme examples, in the book, I have a, a table in the appendix in which I rank um, 35 major public and private universities by their sex ratios. And then I pair that with students' own comments about dating life at their colleges. And th- those comments come from uh, Niche.com, N-I-C-H-E.com, which is student-authored college review website. And it's, it's just clear how, how strong the correlation is. So at Georgia Tech, which is uh, about 65% male, the, the comment was, Tech is a fairly monogamous campus, and people like to be in relationships. At Boston University, which is 62% female or three women for every two men, the comment was, freshman year is a sexual explosion. There are girls to go around and around again. Even at Baylor University, which is a Christian, it's a Methodist university in Texas. That's interesting. Not where you'd expect to have a, a wild social scene. The comment on niche was, the same girls that run in the social hookup circles on Friday night are taking you to church with them on Sunday. The guys practice the requisite Christian business principles, but blow through the Baylor babes that are an endless supply, end quote. So you, you can really see how these gender ratios affect not only the odds of finding a, for women finding a boyfriend, but affect behavior.
0: Yeah. And, and I found it really interesting that you said the guy's behavior changed in accordance with this, too, because I'm here to you know, a quick background myself. Like I've gone kind of gone through monogamous to polyamorous and then backward and forth over time, and now that you're saying this, I'm wondering: is it is it related to where I was living at the time? <laughs> you know, it's, it could be something something related like that. So it's it's another interesting dimension to look at your your own um, motivations and goals at any one time. I think. So we've talked about some of the the popular uh, colleges to, to give people idea how this works out. I mean, a lot of people, we've talked about hookup culture in colleges uh, before, and that this is something that is more common. Do you think there are other trends related to this? And also was interested in in the college campus where in New York, where the women were were more active and it wasn't monogamous. Is that also potentially a bias of the uh, topics that is studied there? Or do you think that's not relevant?
1: Well, I don't think what they're studying is affecting social life or sexual behavior. But as with cities, certain schools do tend to attract more women versus more men. So it's not a coincidence that Caltech has more men or that New York University, which is a big liberal arts school, has more women.
0: Just for the guys at home, like, does it make a difference which subject you study? That's a potential factor here. Like you say, if you're going to study arts and you're going to go to an arts college, then it's more likely that the ratio is skewed towards women versus versus men. And if you're going to study tech and IT, it's probably the other way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the schools that are very liberal arts focused tend to have more women. The schools that have larger engineering or science or math programs tend to have more men, although more men is relative. So there's a school in suburban Boston, Tufts University, which is 50-50. Now, uh, Tufts is 50-50 because it has a big engineering school. But you have to put this in the context of the average US college is about 58% or 57% female. So 50-50 is, is actually a very good gender ratio for women as opposed to one that's just, just okay. A school that's fifty fifty is one that actually, relatively speaking, has disproportionate numbers of men. Well, why is that? Because the so, the so the average college in the U.S. is fifty eight or fifty seven percent female. So a school that's fifty percent male is actually one that has relatively more men than oh, the average.
0: Right, just because the, the, we it's all skewed now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All over, over that. But in terms, I mean, did you look at any 50-50 examples to see what the dating culture was like there?
1: Yeah, Tufts University is a good example. Again, they're in suburban Boston. The comment on niche was halfway through sophomore year, people begin to pair off and generally stay paired off through junior and senior year. Another one that's 50-50, a college that here in the U.S. that we all think of as being a big party school, University of Miami. The comment there, again, it's its about 50-50. The comment there was, random hookups are common in the beginning, but after a few months or a year, relationships take over. So you, you can see that the schools that have some gender balance, while, yeah, casual sex is, is nothing new in college, it, it does tend to taper off a little bit because of the balance, whereas the schools like... NYU or Sarah Lawrence or University of Georgia that are hugely disproportionately female, the hookup culture runs all the way through college. And and actually, you know, what's interesting is a couple of years ago, Facebook did a study on where on its married members and where they met their spouses. And what they found is that the men who were most likely to have met their wives in college did not attend the schools with the most women they attended schools that were disproportionately male which sounds counterintuitive but in fact it makes perfect sense because if they had gone to a school that was 60 percent female settling down would have been the last thing on their mind
0: yeah it it does make sense when you when you put it like that kind of turns it on its head so what kind of objections do you get from people to these ideas
1: there are two things I hear a lot. One, and we can talk about this, is that I'm not paying enough attention to the impact of of technology, of online dating, or of, of apps like, like Tinder. And the other one I hear is that this is really a story about pop culture or changing values in society. And that's why young people are more sexually active, not gender ratios. A rebuttal to both of those. You, you tell me where you want to start with that.
0: I think coming from my perspective, we've spoken about this before on the show. I think there's something to the pop culture. The media has changed over time. But I've been interesting to what you, your perspective on that. I mean, you brought up an interesting, some interesting historic examples before.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about, I have two thoughts on the pop culture argument. One, I have 15-year-old twins. And as a parent of teenagers, and I think most parents and certainly nearly all neuroscientists would tell you that teenagers are much more susceptible to outside influence be it peer pressure or cultural influences than mature adults i think that's a pretty common commonly held accepted belief right
0: yeah absolutely
1: okay so think about that and just Park that concept in your brain for a minute. And then I'm going I'm to share some data with you. So the U.S. Centers for Disease Control does studies on, uh, releases data, or does studies and surveys on teen sexuality, on what percentage of teenagers age 15 to, I think, 18 are sexually active. And what's fascinating is the percentage of teens who are sexually active is lower today in the United States than it was 30 years ago at the height of the AIDS crisis. So what's clear is that if Hollywood is trying to promote promiscuity, based upon what teenagers are doing, Hollywood is doing a terrible job at this because teens are actually having, having less sex than they've had in 30 years. But something is happening once the kids go to college. And if you there have been reports released, uh, you know, by uh, like government, like the the state of Rhode Island here uh, in the US released a report indicating that sexually transmitted disease rates were going through the roof, and they blamed this on. They claimed that college kids were, were most susceptible to this. So it's clear that the college kids are having a lot more sex, but The high school kids are having less sex, which tells me this is not about pop culture. And then the other thing I'd point out is I have a chapter in the book that focuses on conservative religious groups, um, ultra-Orthodox Jews here in the U.S., and actually abroad as well, and Mormons in Utah. And in both of those communities, for reasons that are different from the college explanation, there is an oversupply of women in, in, among marriage-age people, among both Mormons and ultra-Orthodox Jews. And in both cases that oversupply has led to a more sexualized dating culture. And you'll have to trust me when I tell you that ultra-Orthodox Jews are not swiping right or left on Tinder, and Mormons in Utah are not spending a lot of time uh, watching rap videos. Okay.
0: <laughs> this is some interesting things. So, so on Tinder, I'm guessing your, your view is just that Tinder is just an enabler. It's not really the cause of anything here. If anything, it's like basically an artifact. It's just showing, showing something that would go on anyway, making it possibly a little bit easier. Is that the way you view Tinder?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a symptom, not a cause. So Tinder is what? I think three years old, maybe maybe four years old. The hookup culture existed prior to four years ago. And this notion that Vanity Fair put out there that the entire hookup culture is a byproduct of Tinder, it just really makes no sense because what's going on today is not really any different than what what was happening in, in 2008 or 2009. Yeah. That's one argument. And the other is, and you and I were talking off air about this earlier, is that there's a very long, very silly history of people blaming some new technology on young people having more sex. The classic example of this is the 1920s, when the moralists of the era tended to blame the automobile for a more sexualized, more permissive dating culture In fact, the story of the 1920s was almost entirely a story of gender ratios. You had about 10 million young men who died in World War I, another 20 million or so who were injured, many of them grievously. So you had a major undersupply of men back then. And that is why the sexual culture in the 1920s was so much more permissive.
0: Right. And then it adjusted back over time, as that that was seen. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, those histor- historic examples. Also going like back, because it kind of goes up and down. We heard you, there's the kind of the 70s, the flower age, where it was more promiscuous again. I don't know if you have any, know any data on that.
1: Yeah, that too is a byproduct of, of demographics. So back then, in, in the 60s and 70s, back then there was a, a traditional age gap at marriage. You'd have men marrying women three, four, five years their junior, age-wise. So I want you to think about that age gap in the context of the baby boom. Think about how relatively few men were born before the end of World War II in 1941, 42, 43, and 44, versus how many more women were born after World War II in 1946, 47, and 48. And then fast forward 20 years, and you end up, in the mid and late 1960s, in a dating market that had about 20% more marriage age women than men because of the age gap at marriage. And that is why we had a sexual revolution in the 1960s, because of the oversupply of women.
0: It's very interesting. It's the first time I ever heard that. So uh, did you find references to that elsewhere? Or is it?
1: Yes, this isn't my argument. I mean, I didn't come up with this. This was a research done by Marsha Gutentag, who was a a psychology professor at Harvard University. She wrote a book that was published posthumously uh, and actually finished by her second husband. Uh, The the book is titled Too Many Women. It's an incredibly interesting in-depth look at how gender ratios affect marriage rates and affect behavior. And her research goes all the way back to ancient Greece. It's not just contemporary.
0: Great. Thanks for that. It's interesting about, so according to the trends you've been describing right now for non-college educated guys, they're more likely to be more monogamous inclined and more interested in marriage just because of the situation they're in.
1: Yeah. The working class guys are in a really challenging Dating market. So among um, working class people, men and women in their twenties, about thirty percent of the women are married, but only about twenty percent of the men are married. Which kind of shows um, how the numbers game plays out, in which the women have more leverage. And it's actually not just; it actually has an economic impact too, because if you look at at the earnings of men in their twenties without a college degree. The ones who are fully employed and married earn 20% more than the ones who are fully employed and not married, which really goes to show how much economic bargaining power the working class women have when it comes to choosing a spouse.
0: Wow, yeah, that's very interesting.
1: Having lived in Shanghai, I'm sure you you see this as well. It's kind of known that in China, a middle class male bachelor has to own his own apartment and have, have his own car if he wants to find a wife. And I, there was a great story I read in Bloomberg on Bloomberg News a couple months ago that quoted a young husband who was about to have his first child. And he told the the reporter that he hopes he has a girl because having boys is too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> because because there's all this pressure on the parents wow. of boys to help the young men pay for apartments and pay for cars so they can get
0: married. Yeah. In China, you see also that the guys with a lot of money, they tend to have a lot of mistresses. So when I was there, I felt like potentially that was part of the culture because of China's got this uh, this history of having mistresses and and so on concubines. I think this presents it in a different light also because there's very, because if you look at, you're looking at different demographics, right? And you've segmented off college educated here, but in China, there's very, very few rich people. It's getting more normalized now, but as you go further back, that it really was very extreme. There's a few people at the top and, and the rest are all on the bottom level. So would you say that that plays out in, to the same degree? If there's like 10 rich guys here and it's just really uneven, it's a very pyramidal society, it's going to be more like that?
1: I think some of what you're talking about will always exist regardless of the gender ratio. So the billionaire men will always have lots of options with women. Whereas the women who look like Giselle will always have plenty of male suitor. That's going to be the case regardless of the of the gender ratio.
0: Great. Great. So I was wondering if this is actually worse for uh, after college, because uh, we discussed previously how women will tend to date up. Right. So you've got a pretty Giselle. Right. And she's uh, non-college educated. But there's a fair number of college educated guys, which, as I understand, it would be okay. with uh, marrying a girl who is non-college educated, whereas with the women, it seems like they don't like to uh, do that.
1: I'm not sure if we had talked 50 years ago, Um, that would have been the case, but I think that would have just more reflected the fact that very few women were going to college 50 years ago. So the the college educated men kind of like had no choice but to expand their dating pool to include non-educated women. But actually, if you look at the studies that have been done here in the U.S., at least, on what sociologists call assortative mating, which is basically what we're talking about here, that that, uh, college grads sticking with other college grads, it's actually the men who have become more rigid over the past 50 years about not marrying women who lack education what you might call this classism and dating or this uh, rigidity when it comes to willingness to expand your dating pool. Um, It just doesn't penalize men in the same way because the supply of college educated women is so vast that being closed-minded and and refusing to consider dating a woman who doesn't have a degree, it it just doesn't, doesn't impact the man in the same way. But a woman who is unwilling to date across educational lines, so to speak, it has a much bigger impact on her because there are four of her for every three of the educated men. And not only does that make it harder by the numbers to find somebody, but it kind of gives the men way too much leverage and encourages them to play the field.
0: Yeah, okay, great. I wanted to move a little on to what kind of competition you've seen basically in these, uh, how you've seen modified behavior, say in in the campuses, where they they have these ratios. I guess it's easier to talk about the campuses versus the work situation in cities like New York. Have you seen increased competition between females? Have you seen changes in behavior beyond the, the fact that they're just hooking up?
1: Yeah, the college campuses are good examples because they're kind of like self-contained dating pools where the students tend to only date each other. Not always, but that's the in general. One of the Sarah Lawrence women I interviewed did tell me that that she felt like a lot of the women just were acting like idiots around the, around the guys. And this had to do with competition. Now, there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg element to this. Like, I I don't know if when a 19-year-old young woman shows up on a college campus like Sarah Lawrence, which is 75% female, or a college campus like University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is 60% female. I, I don't know if if she's doing a conc- like some math in her head and saying, you know what, I have to be more aggressive because there are fewer men and more women. I suspect it's more of a kind of a when in Rome phenomenon that that they're arriving, they're showing up into a culture that's already very sexualized and in which women are competing for men and they're kind of just going with the flow. I have to admit, this is one thing I I never really got a firm handle on. I don't know whether this behavior is is conscious or subconscious or some mix of the two.
0: I mean, it sounds like some of them are conscious about it, but I find... In most things that are dating, most people are unconscious about it. They're just going on about it, um, and then there's a select few, and you've got examples, you know, uh, where people are talking actually talking about the market and and things like that, where they become conscious of it. So it's interesting that it might be just that there's this culture that's formed around this demographic bias. So maybe there'd be some kind of lag there. do know, like, so if you adjusted the 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 ratio to fifty fifty tomorrow, maybe it would take a little while to reset. Or do you think it would be?
1: Yeah, I think so. But it wasn't just in colleges. I mean, I did interview men in New York who commented on how competitive women were with each other and how quick they were to put other women down. And some of these men were kind of exploiting that uh, to their advantage.
0: Some of the men were exploiting that to their advantage.
1: Yeah. So I had I had this one guy tell me that his. This guy was a real player, and he told me that his favorite activity for a first date was to go to a um, kind of an outdoor bar or cafe and engage in some ill-natured people watching with his date. And he would say things like, oh, look at the dress she's wearing. You know, some woman would walk by and he'd comment on how how terrible the dress was or how awful her shoes were or how slutty the blouse was, something like that. And he said that that by by doing this and by putting down other women who are walking by, it created this instant rapport with his date. It, and in his mind, it made her more into him.
0: Yeah, I can see that totally working. I've heard the exact opposite from uh, dates in Los Angeles where they'll see guys watching girls going past and they complain that that's something that happens regularly on dates. Right, right, right.
1: But what <laughs> so, he's doing... Yeah,
0: he's doing the opposite. He's, he's playing to advantage. He's saying, oh, look, at those horrible. Those girls would never be interested in those. Yeah, so, so we've spoken about intersexual competition where women put each other down in order to compete for men. How about things like plastic surgery or like just dressing up and being more willing to perform different sex acts and stuff with guys? Is there that kind of stuff going on as well?
1: In that book, I referenced uh, Too Many Women by by the late Harvard professor, Marsha Gutentag. I mean, she, she cites clinical sex surveys, uh, which indicate that when, when gender ratios skew female, in other words, when there are more women than men, everybody actually has better sex, both married people and single people, and there's more sexual experimentation, more foreplay, and uh, people have more sex and longer sex as well so so clearly there's some correlation here between prevailing sexual mores and sexual practices and and sex ratios in terms of plastic surgery um you know one of my more interesting findings i mentioned to you that i looked at a couple of different you know, very conservative religious groups one of them being mormons in the state of utah and i don't know how familiar people are with mormons in the uk but they're, they're, they're very conservative they get married young and have lots of kids but one of my surprising findings was that that Salt Lake City, Utah, there's a, uh, a website that's kind of the leading review site for plastic surgeons and plastic surgery. And this website did a survey and they found that Salt Lake City actually led the nation in breast implants on a per capita basis. Salt Lake City also has about three times as many plastic surgeons per capita as other US cities. And I would hear stories about Mormon women feeling pressure to have breast implants or have other kinds of plastic surgery. That I, I had talked to one surgeon who told me that he had college-age women coming in for Botox treatments. So clearly, these gender ratios do put pressure on women to appear more marriageable and to keep up appearances.
0: That's a great example. It certainly goes completely against the stereotypes you have of Mormons. Yeah. It sounds like demographics can overpower most, most things. Uh, Like if it's overpowering Mormons and who tend to be more rigid in these kind of areas.
1: That was why I wrote the chapter because I figured, you know, if I could show that, that demographics affect Mormons, I figured people would, would buy the, the, uh, the argument for New York city better or more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great example. It sounds like it's quite positive for college-educated men in a number of places, or so if they're working in New York, um, or if they're at college in these these schools. Is there any downside for men in these places, whether it be in terms of relationships or like any dating downside for a guy being in his place?
1: Well, for a guy who is who actually, I'm not you know, I'm not saying. All men like are into hookups and all women you know, want to get married. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be the morality police here, and I'm not assuming that monogamy is the best lifestyle choice. But certainly there are some men who are marriage-minded and who are inclined towards monogamy, and it, it could be harder for them to find a woman who wants to settle down if they're part of a dating culture that is not monogamy-focused.
0: Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Because uh, people tend to be swayed by the people around them in terms of their activity. And if, everyone, if everyone's hooking up, I could see more cheating going on for people in monogamous situations. What do you think of you no know, sites like um, the affairs websites at the moment? Do you think they play into these trends in places in New, like New York or anything?
1: I mean, like Ashley Madison, things like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. You cool. know,
1: I was at a um like a couple years ago. The the, the online dating industry actually has a a trade group, and I, and I was at their conference a couple years ago. And the, the Ashley Madison folks were there, and it, while they didn't admit it, I I really got the sense that there were very few women on Ashley Madison, and it was really more more of a a business venture than an actual hookup site. Uh, because I obviously, if you don't have really any women signed up, it's kind of hard to cheat. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that one.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because there's there's stats and it's in the news and and so on. But I have the same feeling as you. I feel like it's a very, very distorted ratio and it's male, male heavy. And there's some other sites like that in Asia. That's why I know a bit about that. And um, at one point I was actually um, talking to them about business. And I I got the idea that there really weren't very many women at all on these sites. And it was mostly about getting guys to sign up in order to pay. And then, you know, there's a few girls in there, but it's kind of too late you paid and
1: Right. It's kind of like the like the sex talk phone lines. You know, the guys call up thinking they're talking to somebody real, but they aren't.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you probably got like paid um, people chatting. I, I don't know how dodgy it is, but it just looks a little bit. I don't know if actually Madison has any of those kind of business practices. Not, not at all. There was another interesting thing about Asian American women. How this might be a little bit different for them in, in the working age uh, group?
1: Yeah. After I wrote the chapter on the religious groups, I, I began thinking about well, what other groups have gender imbalances or gender ratio imbalances, particularly among college grads? And in the United States, Asian-Americans are about twice as likely to be college-educated as the norm. I figured, well, given that Asians are disproportionately college-educated, Asian-American women must be disproportionately affected by what I call the man deficit or or this college gender gap. So I began looking at the numbers and it turned out that I was 100% wrong. Asian American women are basically immune to what I call the man deficit. I think the number according to the US census data, 88% of Asian American women aged 30 to 34 either are married or have been married versus 77% for white women, 73% for Hispanic women, 46% for for black women. But what was interesting is that 30 years prior, the numbers were reversed. And the Asian American women actually had below average marriage rates. But something clearly happened in the the 90s, perhaps, that changed their marriage prospects. And I I had a, a conversation with a A friend of mine, a woman who is half Chinese, and she said, oh, definitely, that when I was in high school, nobody wanted to date the Asian girl, but after college, we suddenly became more popular. And for her, the the cultural touchstone for this was an episode of the TV show Seinfeld, in which Jerry was going out on a blind date with a a woman who he thought was Asian, Donna Chang. The punchline was that she wasn't Asian, (laughs) but he was so excited about me going out with an Asian girl. And uh, for my friend, this was kind of a big turning point.
0: Right, right. I mean, I guess in the US, right? Because over time, uh, how would you say, bias against ethnicities has, has been worked out of the system, right? Whereas it used to be stronger when Asians migrated a few decades. It hasn't been that long they've been there. But over time, that kind of like works itself out and they just become part of the dating pool. Then you could maybe base it down to that, in general, a white guy is more attracted to a, um, an Asian girl, just biologically. Having erased that social
1: one dating coach I, I interviewed told me that that nowadays uh, classism is a bigger problem in dating than racism, and I, I think that's probably right. So when it comes to the Asian women, it's not just that the, the the playing field is level, but kind of as you as you alluded to, there does seem to be some extra advantage that that Asian women have. And there was actually a study out of the UK by Michael Lewis, who's a professor of cognitive sciences at, at cardiff university and he did a study in which he interviewed men of all races and he found that men in general did in fact perceive asian women as most attractive
0: if i remember correctly i don't know if you saw this the ok cupid trends blog they do all that analysis on their data i think they had the same thing pointed out as well
1: yeah, and that's in the book as well. So the OK Cupid folks found the same thing. And what was so fascinating about the OK Cupid study is that it even held true for lesbians. Asian lesbians, when they sent out messages to other lesbians, had a higher message response rate than lesbians of other races.
0: It's interesting because you can't just put it down to biological diversity, right? Because then it would be also related to uh, African ethnicity as well right? But you, you don't see that. So it's kind of interesting. Or I don't know, the other thing like evolutionists often talk about is um, scarcity, right? So if there was less less Asian women, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that is true in the US these days in most places. Is that something you looked at?
1: I did look at the why part of it. But the more I dug into the why, the more I felt like that was just going to get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. because, it, because some of the studies, while they kind of have a sheen of science about them, they kind of boil down to these like crass stereotypes about body type and things like that. And I, I, there may be something to it. I just didn't, for me, for my purposes, the why didn't really matter for my purposes. All that mattered is that Asian women actually do have an advantage in the dating market. Uh, the, the why part, it was just going to get me into trouble and it didn't
0: matter. Yeah. So from a guy's perspective, it means that chasing Asian women is probably going to be harder than chasing chasing white women overall. All things equal. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So that's the takeaway there. Yeah. Okay. So there was one other area I was just uh, interested that this has impacted and and you've seen this is like marriage length and duration and cheating in places like NYC or others where amongst the college educated is has it affected marriages and relationship quality and relationship duration?
1: Yes. And I actually have some great data for this. So as I mentioned earlier, there's one part of the US where the dating demographics are essentially the opposite of what you find in New York. And that's Silicon Valley or the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Santa Clara County, which is basically geographically uh, overlaps with, with Silicon Valley. And what's interesting is if you look at at marriage data for Silicon Valley. And in Silicon Valley, there's about 30% more single marriage age, college educated men than women. Um, so it's basically the reverse of New York.
0: I've spoken to a lot of men who complain about uh, yeah. Silicon Valley.
1: So let me share something with you. So among college educated people age, uh, or women age 30 to 39, in Silicon Valley, 78% of the women are married versus 69% nationally and 41% in Manhattan, in New York. But getting to your question, in that same age group, college grads, age, college grad women age 30 to 39, 4% of those Silicon Valley women are divorced or separated versus 9% nationally. So you can really see how the, the shortage of women out there makes the marriages more stable.
0: Do you know what the divorce statistic is in New York?
1: About the national average, it was about 9%. But but I think part of the problem with looking at divorce, is like I'm more interested in the concept of monogamy than marriage. And because everybody in New York is delaying marriage and people are getting married much later because everybody's playing the field, the, the divorce statistics are, I think, a little bit- It's a bit early. Yeah, because if a much smaller share, so if only 41% of people in Manhattan age 30 to 39 are married versus 69% nationally, that means there's fewer, there's less opportunity for divorce or separation. So there will be fewer people who will show up as a divorce data point. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, that that makes uh, perfect sense.
1: If there was some way, if the U.S. Census Bureau asked people about monogamy, I, I think it would show what you're suggesting, that, that monogamy is more challenged in New York than it is
0: nationally. Great. Maybe Ashley Madison's doing well in New York. <laughs> Maybe that's where all our business is. John, this has been a great interview. Is there any like, big part of your work that we've missed in this conversation?
1: No, I mean, the only other thing that the people do ask me about here in the US, and I I don't know if this has been an issue in the UK as well, but among college students, there's been a lot of um, outcry and concern about sexual assault on campus. Is this something you see out there? No, I
0: don't don't think so. I'm not very good at watching the news, but I'm aware of the stuff that's been going on in the US. Uh, I don't think it's occurred here in the UK. Okay,
1: well, there's certainly more attention being Focused on this. And as it turns out, there have been studies done of both FBI crime data and Interpol crime data for various countries and other locales. And sociologists who study sex ratios will tell you that, as counterintuitive as it may sound, the sexual assault rate is higher when women are in oversupply. And uh, there was a study that a Columbia University professor did of China, and she found that the only category of violent crime that's declined in China over the past 20 years is rape, which makes, you know, which kind of fits the argument because the young population in China has become more and more male. So I, I tend to believe that this this problem in the United States of campus sexual assault is actually directly related to the increasingly imbalanced sex ratios on campus. Yeah, because it seems
0: like some of it is uh, partying getting out of hand in a more extreme hookup culture where it's it's more normal and people have kind of reset their expectations, they get drunk. Uh, I think you'd, you'd expect it to happen, mistakes to happen more often versus a monogamous, you know more calm, we should we call it more calm culture. Um, these kind of things are less likely to get out of hand.
1: I, I could be. I, I mean, I, I that's probably part of it. I do think it goes beyond hookups going, you know, getting out of out of hand. Um, you know, what's interesting is that Marcia Gutentag, that Harvard psychologist, she she looked at at ancient Greece and. In Sparta, because all the men were off fighting wars, the sex ratio in Sparta was disproportionately female, whereas in Athens, it was disproportionately male. And as it turns out, the punishment for rape in Athens was death. The punishment for rape in Sparta was a monetary fine. And her conclusion was, that, and other scientists have looked at this, the conclusion is that women are devalued when they are in oversupply. And conversely, men value women more, protect them more, treat them better when women are scarce.
0: That makes, that makes good sense. You know, it's just like it's very good, solid economical sense.
1: It's disheartening and sad and so in, in every way, but I think it's true.
0: Great, great. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. That's, that's, that's really good stuff. So what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about your work?
1: Well, I, my website is dateonomics.com, D-A-T-E-O-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. I'm on Twitter at JohnBurger1. It's J-O-N-B-I-R-G-E-R-1. Those are probably the two best ways to reach out
0: to me. Excellent. We'll put those in the show notes. And who besides yourself is like, would you recommend for high quality advice in this whole dating area? Maybe people you've come across in your own studies.
1: Um, there's a couple dating coaches and date- and matchmakers who I interviewed, who I thought were really smart. There's a a woman here in New York, a young woman, Maria Abgatidis, who runs a matchmaking service called Agape, A G E P E. There's a dating coach who I, I encountered, Evan Mark Katz, who I think is really smart. Yeah, you you, you mentioned that. Okay, Cupid. Okay, Trends Data Blog. I, I I think that's fascinating. There's a lot of good information there.
0: Great, great. Thanks, Joe. Some good references. Well, this is a question I, I for everyone at the end, so I'd be interested to get your, your perspective might be very different to some of the other people we've had on. What would be your top three recommendations to a guy who's starting out from scratch, so he's got no prior knowledge about women and dating and all this stuff? Maybe uh, he's in his pre-college years in your situation it might be interesting to improve their dating life as fast as possible and kind of like or have the best dating strategy.
1: Well, there's a bigger problem here, like when it comes to boys and education and boys in school. And it's a problem that that girls are kind of outpacing boys when it comes to education. And I I do believe that if you told a 14 or 15-year-old boy who maybe is a borderline candidate for uh, attending college that he has two life paths in front of him a working class dating market with too many men versus a college educated dating market with too many women and that if they go to college they can you know get laid more often you know maybe they'll work a little bit harder in school if they know that those are the two life paths before
0: them. I'm sure that would motivate a lot of teenagers
1: yeah I think the other upside to this is it isn't just good for dating this is good for the economy and good for their future earnings because it's a problem that that not enough men go to college
0: yeah, I think, as you say, their whole quality of life is going to improve as a result of even focusing on improving their dating life. Exactly. You know, if, even if that's your main motivation and you're currently in high school.
1: It may not be what mom and dad would tell you in terms of why you should study hard, but maybe this is a, a better motivation for some young men.
0: I guess the other counter part of that is that you know Silicon Valley is hugely popular, of course, with very driven young men. And it's pretty unfortunate that that's a harder place to date.
1: Yeah, I have a quote from a an executive recruiter in the tech industry, and he's based in Boston. And uh, he kind of is pushing back against the efforts of all these Silicon Valley companies to convince people from the East Coast to move out there. And his point was, what they don't tell you is that you'll have no social life because there are no women out there.
0: Yeah. What is, I mean, it's great. That, I mean, maybe your book will help bring this to light and Google and, and other big companies will be like, OK, we need to put a Campus in Austin, Texas. I mean, we need to put some campuses elsewhere and spread things out a bit. And then it, maybe over time it will play that dynamic down a bit. But it's probably in their interest, you know, because it's like quality of life for employees. You could probably measure it down to how long someone's going to want to stay with you and maybe if they're going to leave you and decide to relocate at some point.
1: See, I was thinking about in the other direction. I, I, my thought was that, that a lot of these tech companies are under pressure to to narrow their, the gender gap in their workforces uh, and to recruit more women. And I kind of thought that this could be a way to, for them to get more women to move out there.
0: Right. That sounds great too. I mean, I would have thought a lot of these companies are already actively doing it. It's just that I guess a lot of the women aren't going for IT yet. And um, that's still something that's which is.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also a tricky argument. I mean, because you want, you're looking to give people jobs and find qualified people. And it seems, I'm sure that if Google's message to women was move out here because you're more likely to find a husband, I, I am confident that that would not go over well. Uh, But but maybe it's not Google that needs to share that message. Maybe it's more folks (laughs) like me, like you aren't approaching this from a professional standpoint. I'm just talking about demographics.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you know Jeffrey Miller. He's a Evolutionary psychologist, he's wrote. He's written a book recently. We just had him on uh, recently, and he was talking about demographics also.
1: Did he write the book with Tucker Max?
0: That's right, yeah, and he wrote yeah. The Mating Mind before that. Anyway, he, that's one of his interests as well. So if you haven't connected with him, you might want to connect with him because not, I know he likes demographics. He talks a fair bit about it also. So how, how does
1: his collaboration with Tucker Max go? Because he, he Max always struck me as one of the uh, one of the crazier people in in the book world. Opposites attract,
0: I guess. <laughs> so yeah, apparently they met a party. I haven't personally spoken. I've spoken with Jeffrey a couple of times. Uh, interviewed him a couple of times, and yeah, I think you know, I think they really get along. And I think Tucker has calmed down since his very early days. Also, um, he's he's not quite so alcohol fueled. So I guess that's how that worked out. Well, Jonas has been a. Great interview. Very interesting. Definitely some new stuff here that we've never seen before. And for the guys at home to give them a bit more thoughts, probably more about strategy, you know, how they should go about things and their dating life over the longer term.
1: Well, thanks for having me
0: on. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. Step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.